This morning, we will be um, finishing the book of Ruth, um, one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible, one of the most amazing turnabouts in the Bible. Uh, as Pastor Jeff prayed, God is good whether we understand what he's doing or whether we don't understand what he's doing. And he is, in the end, the only one that we can really turn to to meet our needs. So let's do that now in prayer before we open the word of God together. Father, we come to you as our graciously heavenly Father, not only because that is who you are, but that's what we need. There's no one else we can go to, and there is no one else we want to go to. And so, Father, this morning, we ask that you bring quick and complete healing to all those who are sick, members of this body who are not here today, some in the hospital, some simply at home, would you raise them up quickly and return them to us that we might worship with them? We miss them. Father, we lift up Arnette, who's been in the hospital for surgery. She's supposed to get released today. I pray that the surgery was fully successful and that she can return to us uh, next week. Lord, we lift up Mark Thomas, who's been missing for weeks. He's in JFK with infections that they, they don't seem to be able to get under control. Father, you can heal him, and we ask that you do. And Father, um, Jermaine goes under uh, for surgery this coming Friday to, to rejoin a torn tendon that he suffered with for some time. Give the surgeon skill. Let the healing be quick and complete, and let him be able to walk freely in the very near future. Father, you can do all this and more for those whose bodies are giving them troubles. And Father, we, come, we again come to you on behalf of those among us who struggle with doubt or confusion and sometimes depression and more. Life can be hard, and we just pray that you would assure them of your wisdom. Whether we see the plan unfolding in our lives or whether we don't, it is the same God who is working all things together for our good. And I pray you would give them patience and hope and faith that you are that God. You are their Father. You have all wisdom. You have all authority, and you love them greatly. I pray that they could look at the cross with fresh eyes and know that they know that you care for them. Father, we also want to pray for the marriages that are represented in this room, and we thank you that so many are healthy, so many are growing and, and reflect well on, on the marriage between Christ and the church. And we thank you for those. But Lord, there are some that are struggling. Would you renew those marriages with fresh affection, fresh respect, fresh honor towards one another, and fresh hope that you can heal anything and anyone and any marriage? Enable us all to trust your promises that, that whoever would be great among us should become as the servant of all. Help us to die to self and know that that is where we will find life. Lord, heal the marriages in our midst. And finally, Father, we pray for those who have either lost spouses or who have been praying for a spouse sometimes for years and you have not yet provided 
We pray that you would give all such brothers and sisters just a strong sense of your presence. Help them to walk closely with you during these hard seasons. Let them experience you as, as their God, as their Redeemer, as the one who can and will meet all of their needs. Father, thank you that we can come to you in prayer and know that you hear our prayers and that you will answer absolutely wonderfully and appropriately with all wisdom and all power for the people that you love. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all stories, and this will seem kind of one of those duh moments, but all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They have a structure, at least if it's a good story. Um, the, the beginning, the introduction, usually introduces the characters. Who's the story going to be about? It will also probably give us some indication of what the conflict is to be resolved because a story without a conflict isn't much of a story. There's got to be something that needs to happen, something that needs to be fixed. That usually shows up a little bit in the middle and then uh, in the beginning rather and then as you journey through the story you begin to see the themes unfolding of, of how those things are addressed, what works, what doesn't work. And then finally, every story should have an end where it all comes together. The characters that you've come to know find resolution to their problems. And, and if, if it's a good resolution and it's a happy story, we call it a comedy, even if you're not laughing. And if it is a difficult story where the resolution is painful and not what you hoped for, what the characters hoped for, we call it a tragedy. Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy. You wanted things to work out better for them. Well, this pattern, this progression is in fact what we're seeing in Ruth. In the beginning of the story, chapter 1, told us about Naomi and, and Ruth. It told us something about their troubles, about famines, about becoming a refugee, about husbands that die, about 10 years of childless marriage. It's, it's a difficult scenario that we're introduced to all in the first five verses of the book. Um, one writer noted, and I, I want you to remember this because we'll come back to it, that the problem that's introduced for these two women is that they have no food and they have no family. No food and no family. Remember that because we're going to see how that becomes um, central and eventually what God addresses for them in this story. We saw that Naomi was so discouraged that as things began to get better, she didn't see him. Chapter 1 already shows God uh, that, that frowning providence giving way to a smiling face and, and she doesn't see it. She doesn't appreciate Ruth. She doesn't really appreciate that there's a harvest now in Bethlehem so that she can return. She comes back and she's just bitter. She, she's not seeing what God is doing and why she should, in fact, have hope. Chapter 2 develops further the mercies. We, we learn about Boaz. We learn about uh, Ruth being able to glean and come back with a very generous amount of grain for Naomi. Um, we see that there is not just kindness and compassion on the part of Boaz, but probably romantic interest as well. And here we do see Naomi begin to lift a little bit. When she sees how much grain that Ruth brought back, she realizes somebody's paid attention to you. Somebody was kind to you. And then when she finds out that it's Boaz, who is a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, she just explodes 
in praise. And she's really beginning to see, okay, maybe God has not abandoned us after all. But chapter 2 is not just about um, Naomi realizing that, that maybe God hasn't turned against her. Think for a moment how she's behaved. She'd been bitter. She, she's not really submitted or humbled herself very much. I mean, does God owe her anything? As you see her say, he just left me empty. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. There's no words of praise on her lips. There's no thanksgiving. There's not much evidence of faith. And yet God does not turn away from her. He doesn't turn away in anger and in judgment because she's bitter, but he turns to her in mercy. Her experience is not unlike that of Asaph in Psalm 73. Asaph said, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. And with your counsel, you will guide me and afterwards receive me into glory. Like Asaph, Naomi is bitter. She's pierced by her losses. She's senseless. She's ignorant. She's a bit beastly. And God has taken hold of her. He will not let her go. And he begins to show her mercy after mercy. As chapter 3 begins, the harvest is all done. They've harvested the barley. They've harvested the wheat. And Boaz is nowhere to be seen. Um, he, he hasn't returned to the field. Uh, Naomi thinks about this apparently and rightly deduces, yeah, he's interested in Ruth, but he's 20 years older than she is. What, what do we do with this? And she devised a plan for Boaz to know that Ruth is interested in him as well. And it's a plan that could be seen as manipulative or seductive. It's neither, I believe. She sends Ruth to him privately so that he's not put on the spot. She goes almost silently, letting the fact that she's all cleaned up and dressed well say we're not here to talk about gleaning or winnowing or harvesting, but something much more personal. Uh, and she goes to him submissively. She lays down at his feet and refers to herself as his maidservant. And Boaz gets it. He knows what she's trying to communicate. Ruth is offering herself to him in marriage. And he's, he's thrilled. This, this is one of those too-good-to-be-true moments that unfolds in the Hallmark movie, right? And as observers of their story, you should be happy for them. This is where you kind of enter in and go, yes, this is good. And then, just as we think that the problems that the book opened with, no food, no family, all, all this loss that it's all going to be addressed, it's all going to be fixed in this person of Boaz, just as we think that there's a happy ending about to unfold, there's another problem introduced. Boaz, while eager to marry Ruth, reveals he's not first in line to do so. He's not the nearest kinsman. And the happy ending that everybody reading the story should be hoping for is suddenly threatened. There's a man in the story, and we don't want him there because he's got prior rights. We're not cheering for Ruth to marry just anyone. We're cheering for Ruth to marry Boaz. Well, 
as we saw last week in the threat, the face of this threat to their future together, Boaz does something that not all that many Christians do. And he just submits his will to the will of the Lord. He says to Ruth, remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And so instead of entering chapter 4, with just a few loose ends to tie up and, and a wedding to celebrate, we enter chapter 4 with just this huge cloud hanging over the story. Will this nearer kinsman redeemer take Ruth to be his wife? Because it is his right. Will Boaz, who we've come to know and admire, be left to live out his years alone, watching the woman that he loves go into another man's home? It would be a shame if you let your knowledge of how the story ends, because most of you know it. There's no spoiler alerts I can give you here because you know it. Um, it would be a shame if you let it deprive you of using your imagination to enter into the very real challenge that Boaz is facing. As I told you last week, I think this is, this is his foreshadowing of Christ as he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He submits it all to the wisdom and the goodness of God. It's a remarkable faith that we're witnessing, and if you don't linger for a moment or two, you'll, you'll miss it. It's too good to miss. And now chapter 4 opens with Boaz going to find this other relative, this closer kinsman, to discover whether or not his faith and his submission to the word of God is going to cost him marriage to the woman that he so clearly loves. So open your Bibles, if you would, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. We'll take a few verses at a time. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And I think we're once again to see the hand of God on this. That, that word behold, it showed up one other time. Ruth goes into the field of Boaz. Just, you find yourself in his field, doesn't know who he is. And behold, Boaz comes. Now he sits down, Boaz sits down at the gate, and behold, the very person he needed to talk to immediately shows up. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, verse 2 now, and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, Na said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now you should be surprised that this unnamed Relative, and it's interesting that he's unnamed. He plays kind of a key part in the story. It usually doesn't bode well where you're in the story and you don't even get a credit. You're not a name. He may not be that impressive an individual. 
But we shouldn't be surprised that he says, I'll redeem it. He's going to get more land. In an agricultural community, that's not a small thing. That, that, that's your business. That's your livelihood. That's where your wealth comes from. And the only catch in taking the land is that he will get Naomi, the owner of the land. She'll become part of his household. But that's not that big a deal. She, she's older. She's past childbearing years. She's not going to introduce another heir that could complicate things. She can still help around the house. No wonder. He doesn't hesitate. He says, I'll do it. And as he says, I will redeem it. I can't help but wonder what went on in Boaz's heart and mind. Does he continue on with the rest of the transaction and risk losing Ruth? Or does he say, hey, great, you redeem the land. Naomi will come live with you. And by the way, I will marry Ruth, the Moabitess, and she will come and live with me. Does he put Ruth's vow to care for Naomi in jeopardy so that he can have her as his wife? Verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz, right away, makes it clear. The, the man has said, I want the field. And Boaz says, okay. You get something else with the field. This is a, a BOGO, a buy one, get one. Now, whether our reasonings last week about how and why Boaz linked Naomi and her field with Ruth, a widow, a childless widow, whether our reasonings are correct or not, there apparently is a link, one strong enough that, that Boaz's statement that Naomi and Ruth are a package deal went unchallenged by the relative and unchallenged by the ten elders and all the other people that were called to witness this. Then the Redeemer said, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I, I cannot redeem it. Now, we're not told exactly why this man felt that his inheritance would in some way be jeopardized by marrying Ruth, though the most probable explanation is he does not yet have a son of his own. If he did, that son would be from him, the firstborn, and he would inherit all that side of the family's land. He could then take Ruth into the family and, and father a son through her, and that son would eventually grow up and take the land that had been Naomi's. But if there's no son, then this firstborn becomes the son of Ruth. And, and he seems to think that that's going to imperil his family's ability to hang on to the land that they have. Now, we shouldn't care too much about that except to say it appears that Boaz is offering the land and the lady to a man who probably has no son and may have no wife, and what a great deal it then becomes. You get to double your, the size of your business, and you get a wonderful, godly woman to bring into your home. I say that because the risk that Boaz took that this man would say yes to the field 
And yes, to Ruth was real. It wasn't imaginary. If you remember back in 3.13, he told Ruth, you know, the closer kinsman may want to marry you. And if he wants to marry you, well, then he'll marry you. It was a very real risk that he took. This is like Abraham offering up Isaac, not knowing whether the Lord would intervene. Boaz does the same. He offers up Ruth, not knowing whether the Lord will act to stop this. Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Kind of unusual, isn't it? But it's very visual, tactile. If you're there, you know exactly what you witnessed. It's mentioned in, I believe, Deuteronomy 25 that that would be part of the, um, the exchange when something like this happens. It gives a very well-understood and well-attested-to ceremony so that no one can now accuse Boaz of cutting in line. He, he can redeem Naomi's land, and he can um, redeem Ruth as well. That's how he understands it, and that's how the people understand it. We continue in verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. So then, having seen this was all done properly, uh, it was offered to the right individual. The right individual initially said yes. When he realized there's, there's more to it than he first realized, he said, I can't. Boaz, you can do it. It was all done legally, properly. The deal is sealed. And now the people that are gathered at the gate pronounce two amazing blessings on this new family. Verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. I'm sure you all know Rachel and Leah were sisters. They were the wives of Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, from whom the, the nation takes their name. For all the flaws that sometimes marked these two women, they were the ones that gave birth, either directly or indirectly, to the 12 tribes of Israel that would become the nation of Israel. It is an immensely um, important honor in the history of this nation. Those two women were given. This is D David Platt. I listened to his sermon on this this week. It was so good. And he said, as only a, a good southern pastor can say, this is a stout blessing. And it is. It was weighty. And the blessing continues. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
Now, if you know the story of Tamar and Judah, it just became real interesting, didn't it? About 18 months ago, our Sunday school class was in Genesis 38, where that story appears. And I told them of my conviction that when Judah declared that Tamar was the more righteous of the two, he says, you are more righteous than I, he was referring to the risks that she took to continue the family line of Judah. A line that was at risk because Judah had superstitious fears. He had given his first son to Tamar in marriage, and that son was, was killed. The Lord took him because he was evil. His second son then takes over the duties, and he is killed. He also is evil, and he's only got one son left. And Judah says, I'm not risking him. He doesn't risk him. The line of Judah dies. And if you know the story, that's kind of important, that the line of Judah continue on. If that's the correct reading of that somewhat strange chapter, then this becomes here not merely an appropriate blessing, but a prophetic one. As the marriage of Ruth to Boaz is also going to um, uh, perpetuate one of the lines of Judah. Part of the family tree will continue on through them. Now I understand that defending the action of Tamar might be a bit of a novel approach for some of you. But I just point to our text here for confirmation of this. It's a correct way to read the story. In, in Ruth 4, what Tamar did is not seen as shameful. It's not seen as sinful. It's not seen as something that we don't talk about in polite company. It's seen as something that you celebrate at a wedding. I mean, none of us stands to toast the happy couple and lifts up the glass and tink, tink, tink with our, with our knife or fork and says, I want to make a toast. Remember that sordid, debauched, sexual scandal that rocked the family generations ago? Let me wish all that upon the happy couple. <laughs> it's not what they're doing. When they say, may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah, they're wishing them well. The origins of Perez, who's an obscure figure, are made explicit in part of this blessing. Tamar kept a family line of Judah, the family line at that point of Judah, from dying out, and now Ruth is going to be called upon to do the same thing. So Boaz took Ruth, verse 13, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Notice what the narrator just told us. The Lord gave her conception. Now, if you're reading Ruth, you should be fairly familiar to the Lord being brought up. 21 times on the lips of Naomi or Boaz or Ruth or the people, we hear them call him the Lord, we hear them call him God, we hear him call him the Almighty. Uh, the terms are scattered throughout the book. But the narrator only inserts the Lord's name twice in this story in his voice. It happened once in Ruth 1.6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That's the first time. The second and only time then, so Boaz took Ruth, our text, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her 
And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Do you remember what I said the two problems were that were facing these women? No food and no family. And the narrator, as he puts pen to paper and just puts down these events and records this amazing story, wants you to know who the real Redeemer is. At these two critical points, the narrator, probably Samuel, we don't know for sure, he wants the reader to know that it is the Lord who's meeting the needs of these two destitute widows. He uses Boaz, but the narrator lets us know the real kinsman redeemer is the Lord. He's the one who gives them food. He's the one who gives them family. Well, now verse 13 is in some ways the end of Ruth's story. She doesn't appear by name again in the rest of the book. But more importantly, at that point, we've got kind of a full, satisfying solution to all the problems that she had been facing. Her story now has a beginning, a middle, and an end. She's no longer a widow. She's a wife. She's no longer barren. She's the mother of a child, a son, who can carry on Malin's name. She's the wife of a wealthy man who is related to and kindly disposed to Naomi so that her pledge to care for her mother-in-law is not endangered but powerfully enabled. She has found shelter under the wings of God. So what more do you add to that story to make it any better? This is where if you're reading it in the book, you kind of close the book and you're just satisfied. If it's a movie you're watching... Um, you kind of gather your stuff and you get ready to leave the theater. This is where guys turn away and pretend they have something in their eye that's making it water. Um, but the story's not over. Ruth is not the only person whose story's being told, even though the book bears her name. Naomi is also a key figure, and her story's not yet complete. Verse 14 Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Notice the kinsman Redeemer in view right now is not Boaz. It's Obed. It's the son. It's the baby. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Well, now these four verses um, are the climax of Naomi's story. She's redeemed from poverty. She's once again part of a stable household. Uh, the family name will continue on through Obed, who is described as a restorer of life and a sustainer of her old age. And, and again, he's, he's given the same title that Boaz has, was given here. He is the kinsman redeemer suddenly that's in her lap, which I think is just the narrator cluing us in that maybe Boaz is not the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Maybe there's some genealogy that we'll need to unpack to find out who the true kinsman redeemer is. So Naomi 
who began the story being emptied of everything that she held dear is now full as she holds in her lap what verse 17 declares to be her son. Obed takes the place of her son, Malan. But now, whether the story is really about Ruth or it's really about Naomi or it's about Boaz or it's about all of them, it should be over. You really should be able to close the book. There all the problems introduced in the first five verses of the book have been worked through to a fully satisfying conclusion. This, this is a rom-com, a romantic comedy. It's a happy story that ends well for the characters that you've come to know and identify with. It's just it's time to close the book or roll the credits on the screen. And in truth, the middle of verse 17 was the ending of the story for about four generations. Th this would have been the story, as we've seen it so far, that, uh, that Obed was told by Ruth or, or maybe by his grandmother, Naomi, uh, about how they'd come to go to Moab and come back as widows and met Boaz in the field, etc. Obed would have passed this story on to his sons, including one named Jesse, about how their grandparents met one day in a field of all places and then got married despite the fact that it almost was all spoiled because there was somebody else in line ahead of Boaz. Jesse would have told his sons the family story about how their great-grandparents met and how God had sovereignly brought together this Moabite widow and this single older man through means of famine and death and poverty. And then one of Jesse's sons, a son who grew up hearing this little heartwarming family story about God's kindness becomes king. And we discover why in the middle of verse 17 where Ruth and Boaz are married and Naomi is holding their son Obed in her arms, why it's not the end of the story. The author continues. We only read half of verse 17. Let's look at the end of verse 17 now. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Obed, Jesse, David. The narrator, the one telling us this story, wants you to know that the story that we've been reading, the story that was passed down from family member to family member, was never really about Ruth or Naomi or Boaz. It was about God keeping covenant with his people and bringing them the king that they so desperately needed. If you recall, verse 1 of Ruth 1 opens saying, in the time when the judges ruled Israel. We're told when this is happening. If you were to flip back at most one page in your Bible and read the verse immediately before that, you'd be reading the last verse of Judges where we would see, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so there's been another problem that maybe didn't jump out at you right away. First thing you're told is that there's no king. It's the time of the judges. And it's only then that you find out that this impacts Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and others. 
that problem needs to be solved as well. It's a bigger problem, and God solves it beautifully as he enters into these three people's lives. As God cared for Ruth, as he cared for Naomi, as he blesses Boaz, he is also caring for all of his people, preparing to send them a king, a man after God's own heart. So by not letting the story end in the middle of 17, the author's telling us he wants to see that God was doing far more than any of us knew, far more than the characters knew that were actually living this story. They would have died, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, they all would have died knowing that God had been gracious to them and having no idea how gracious. God was taking bitter Naomi and Ruth, the cursed foreigner, and Boaz, the older single man, the son of Rahab, the harlot, and bringing them together to give Israel the king that they so desperately needed. This is a really good story. And now it really should end, right? But it doesn't. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. Now we already know that the story in some way terminates on David when they realize who David is. He's the reason for the story, more so than either Ruth or Naomi. Not one, but two little mini genealogies terminate on David. He's telling you that's the focal point. That's where you should be looking. But if we know that David is the real reason for the story, why go back in the genealogy to a point well before Boaz? Why go back specifically to Perez? He's a somewhat obscure figure in redemptive history, but in this closing, closing chapter of Ruth, he appears not once but twice. Verse 12 and verse 18. In verse 12, he's part of the blessing pronounced on the union between Boaz and Ruth, and in verse 18, he's the head of this 10-generation genealogy. So why is he in our story, and why is he somewhat prominent in the story? Well, the author doesn't tell us, but here's my best guess, and it's backed up by New Testament evidence. We were just told in 411 that Perez is the son of Tamar. She's the first Gentile woman to be included in the genealogy that leads to David and ultimately to Christ. We learn from Matthew's genealogy that Boaz is the son of Rahab. She is the second Gentile woman in that genealogy. And Obed is the son of Ruth, the third Gentile woman in that line. All three of these women are included in Matthew's genealogy that ends with the true focal point of this story, the birth of Jesus Christ. And with the exception of Jesus' mother, Mary, these are the only three women 
that are named in that genealogy. There's one unnamed one, but these three are named, and they're all Gentile. Here's what I think is happening. A promise was made to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Redemption was never meant just for the physical seed of Abraham, for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations of the earth, for anyone who is of the faith of Abraham. And so as the story of redemption is being told, Gentiles are actually folded into the story, not just as beneficiaries, but as brides. The book of Ruth brings before us not one but three Gentile women, all ancestors of Christ, all included in Matthew's genealogy as he makes the point that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that his gospel is to be preached to all nations. When the Pharisees boast, Abraham is our father, they need to be reminded that Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are their mothers. The genealogy is itself a strong rebuke to those who forget who the gospel is really for. So Ruth is not just a wonderful little story about God being gracious to a few people who were once in great need. If it were, it could have ended halfway through verse 17. Instead, it continues on the way it continues on, taking us back to Perez, the son of Tamar, even as we've been admiring Boaz, the son of Rahab, and cheering on Ruth, who gives birth to Obed. It's not just about rescuing Ruth and Naomi from poverty. This is how redemption is going to come to the nations. The cast of Ruth is itself shedding light on the story of redemption. Three women, often misunderstood, sometimes sinful, all foreign, all born outside the nation of Israel, all outside the covenant promises of God, are folded into the story in the most glorious way. So what do we do with this story? Besides just rejoice that it's a good story. It's a beautiful story. So many of you have said, I love Ruth. I love Ruth. You're right to love this book. But what do we actually do with it besides admire it? Well, I'm going to use a very old illustration. Many of you will have heard it, but I think it's a good one. It's the illustration of the tapestry. Turn a tapestry around and look at the backside, and what do you see? You see a mess. You can't really discern the, the uh, theme of it, what's going to be on the other side. You just see threads and colors running all over the place. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No one would buy a tapestry and hang it on a wall so you could look at the backside. No shop displays them like that. But then you turn it around, and what do you see? You see the skill of the weaver, the design, the artistry. What was a mess on one side is revealed to be something beautiful on the other side. And what a phenomenal illustration not just of the story, but of our lives. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz have a mess. Israel has a mess. They have a famine. They have no king. You're looking at the backside of the tapestry, and it's just dark and confusing. 
and nobody wants to hang that on their wall. But when the story ends, it's turned around. And you get to see the beauty. You get to see the design. You get to see the artistry. Some of you ask, me or others in here, what's God doing in your life? Why did he do this and not that? Why is this so hard? Why can't I get any relief from this? The questions are fair. They're often spoken in pain and sometimes even despair. And I've come to the place where I usually admit I, I don't have a very specific answer for you. Who could have answered the questions that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz might have had at various points in the story? Naomi might have asked, why, Lord? Why a famine? Why did my husband die? Why did my sons die? What are you doing, Lord? Can you answer her? Not knowing the end of the story? Ruth may have asked, why am I childless? Why did my husband die? Why did they have to be born in Moab? Boaz might have wondered, why hasn't the Lord brought the right woman into my life? Why am I 50 and still single? And, and now, Lord, you brought this amazing woman into my life. I love her. She wants to be married to me, and I'm not first in line. God, what are you doing? How would you try and answer those questions? Well, this little book is here to tell you that whether or not we have answers, God does. He has good answers, and he will reveal them in time, in his time, not ours. He will turn the tapestry around. You will see a work of art. You will see something glorious and wonderful. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz got to see a little bit of their tapestry, but long after they died, the author put pen to paper because generations later, their story was revealed to be part of a much better bigger, greater story. God was all along, even through some very dark years, doing far more than these people could have asked or imagined. Ruth gives us a glimpse of the front side of their tapestry so that you will know that there's a great storyteller, a great artist at work your story is going to look different. Your tapestry will be different. But it's the same artist. Trust him. Our story is as yet unfinished. All we see at this point, or much of what we see, is the backside. But trust him. Let Ruth build your trust that no matter how dark it is in the moment, he's doing something glorious and wonderful, and you will one day praise him if you're a Christian the book of Ruth is your story whether you realize it or not the details may change but the theme and the man telling it does not for those of you 
who've been here these four weeks who've going, been going through Ruth and who are not yet Christians, who've not yet trusted in God's true kinsman redeemer, here's my prayer. My prayer is that you see a beauty in this story that just draws you in. That, that you, you look at what God is doing and, and, and you look at his wisdom and his perfections and his power and say, I want that. If Ruth can come to faith in her circumstances, God can call you as well. And I pray that the beauty of this story would be his means of doing it. Becoming a Christian is not first and foremost about learning to say no to sinful things, although that is a part of it. I would argue it is first and foremost about falling in love with a redeemer and a redemption that you find beautiful and that's captured your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing story where widows become wives, where the barren are given sons and heirs, where the destitute are made part of a stable, wealthy household, never to hunger again. Thank you for the person and the work of Boaz. And I pray that his kindness, his integrity, and his love, his riches, will teach us much about a much greater kinsman, redeemer, our Lord and our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I pray this little story will give us hope that even in the darkest of times, you are hiding a smiling face. It will one day be revealed to us and we will fall on our knees in worship and say, you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and respond in worship.